This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack Podcast, filling in for Dave Marchese. Back in the 90s, the world had a huge environmental win. All the countries around the world got together and fixed the problem that was causing the hole in the ozone layer. Seems like great news, right? But rocket fuel from space exploration could be reversing all that good work. We're going to be chatting to a scientist who's been looking into that later in the show. Plus, you would have heard people say that romance is dead. It's bleak, I know. But now a researcher has come up with this term, post-romance era, to describe modern dating. She reckons that people these days are too scared to be vulnerable and to deal with all the messiness and all the emotions around love. And she's calling this the post-romance era. It's so scary how when you post a picture, anyone could be doing anything with it and you just have no control. On Triple J. We're always warned that what goes on the internet is going to stay there forever. But what if you've been exploited or abused or there's photos up there that you don't want up there? You'd want them removed, right? Well, this week, Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, announced a new tool that can scrub exploitative images of children under the age of 18. A lot of people are calling this tool a game changer, but then there's also some critics being like, yeah, this is a tech giant. They have had years to get this done. It's been a big problem for a long time that they've known about. I want to hear from you. Have you ever had tried to get any of these images taken down from social media? What was your experience like? Text in on 0439757555. First up, Shalila McDora explains these changes. Sextortion is honestly one of the biggest growing crimes here we see at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We're calling it the hidden pandemic. Gavin Portnoy works at the American National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The center was approached by Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, about how it could tackle the growing problem of explicit images of children on the internet. Losing control of your nude images online is terrifying. And if you're a teen... It may feel impossible to reverse it. What they came up with is a new tool called Take It Down, which was bankrolled by Meta. It works through a process called hashing. The way it works is this. If you have an image and you go to take it down, software is provided onto your device that enables you to create basically what you might think of as a, a numeric fingerprint, a series of numbers, a very complicated series of numbers. Head of Safety at Meta, Antigone Davis, explains to CNN how it works. We then can take that hash, keep it in a data bank, and if someone tries to share that image, all of those numbers will be match up, at, up against the numbers that are in our data bank. If those numbers match, the image will be taken down. But crucially, this doesn't apply to adults whose images have been shared without consent. The new service is open to anyone under the age of 18 or people worried about intimate content posted when they were a child. In 2022, we finished the year with over 32 million reports into the tip line. The tip line averages 80,000 reports a day. John Sheehan from the National Centre of Missing and Exploited Children told ABC News Radio more people are reporting child sexual abuse and grooming. And a lot of those increases are because the tech industry, a lot of the big players like the Meadows, the Googles, etc., they're getting better at proactively identifying not just child sexual abuse material, but when children are being groomed or enticed for sexual purposes as well. Hack on Triple J. Shalila Madora reporting there. 
And if you think your images have been shared without your consent, there is help available in Australia. You can report it through the office of the eSafety Commissioner and you can search for the reporting tool at eSafety.gov.au. To find out a bit more about this, I've got Dr. Katrina Wallace with me. She's the founder of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. Dr. Katrina, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Joe. Just to start with, can you just explain a bit more about how this technology works and how this hash or fingerprint works when you put it onto an image? Yeah, so it's essentially an, an AI-based matching algorithm where there's two ways, is my understanding, that it'll work. One, you provide some content to the website Take It Down, which is operated by the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, and the algorithm will... Uh, read that image, create uh, like a code, which would was a series of numbers, and then that code is provided to the tech giants. So including, my understanding, Facebook, Instagram, OnlyFans, and Pornhub, at least. Those ones have been um, named publicly. And then those tech giants would use that code to uh, find or identify those images that match the code and then take them down. Or... There's another way that the young people and under 18-year-olds, they don't need to load content to match it. They can have a QR-related code generated anyway for them. Right. So does this only apply to photos that they people would have taken themselves? Can you apply a, a hash or a fingerprint to photos that you haven't taken? It's just that you know that they're out there? Is that how it works? Yes, it's a bit unclear, but the way it works, it'll be using facial recognition software. So if you put an image of your face into the algorithm, then theoretically the algorithm would would match your face across many images, whether you've taken them or somebody else has. Oh, right. And what about then if they get edited? Does this fingerprint still work? Like say if the if the photo gets like, I don't know, cropped or altered in some way, would that still work? It'll depend on how good the facial recognition system is with Meta's companies, which are Facebook and Instagram and the others. We expect that that they do use very good facial recognition technology. So that should be, if the images are modified to a degree, they should still be able to be picked up. And we also understand that this algorithm can pick up deep fakes. So if it's good enough to do that, it should be good enough to do um, altered images. Right. So do you think this is a smart way to deal with this problem of photos getting spread without someone's consent, which we do know is a massive problem? Oh, look, it is a massive problem, Joe. but the other massive problem is, and this is the thing that I'm so incensed about with this news of Meta coming out and, and uh, announcing that it's partnering with Take It Down to do this. We've got to remember the problem has been created by companies like Meta in the first place, allowing explicit content uh, onto their sites and not allowing children or other people to take it down in the first place. So if we think about this, Meta has been around for 19 years, and it's now only because of government pressure, investment pressure, public pressure, that they're actually doing a small step towards remedying a huge problem that they've been instrumental in creating. So Joe, my way of thinking about it, it's exactly the same as a cigarette company decides to partner with a lung cancer centre to treat lung cancer. It's it's exactly the same. It seems like as well, it's also, I guess, the onus is really on the victim here to, to kind of put the hash or the fingerprint on and take the action and do this as well. 
Right, that's exactly right. Big criticism of the the program, and it tends to be very typical with these social media companies, particularly Meta, that the onus is on the user to be actively trying to fix this problem that their platform has created. So we don't think that's how it should be. We think there should be much greater onus on the platform companies to avoid this explicit content being posted in the first place and then make it very easy for people to have it removed. And, of course, Joe, we're talking about the under-18-year-olds. I've got a 21-year-old daughter and a 31-year-old daughter, both of whom have experience in this field and can't get their content taken down. So what do we do with all the rest of the population who are not under 18? I was going to ask that. Do you think it should be rolled out more broadly so anybody at any age could have photos that they they don't like that are online taken down? Absolutely. That must be what we, the public, call for as soon as possible. Now, I know it is because it's been funded by the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, and I do agree that we know child exploitation through the use of sexual imagery and then child extortion, so extorting money from children around uh, sexual imagery online, is a huge growing crime. So I understand the focus on children is very, very important, but there is also the rest of the population who, particularly women, Joe, that's my concern, Mm -hmm. it is women and girls, who are also still incredibly vulnerable. We've got a question here on the text line that you might be able to answer. Um, someone has said, can someone else register your image? And then someone someone else, Lucas, has also um, raised a similar question. If they hash it or provide a QR code, what's to stop some random person from hashing a celebrity's face? Right. Good, good question. And that opens a question further to um, hackers and to people posing as other people and fraud. And also, we don't know, uh, well, we do know algorithms are never 100% reliable. So there are going to be errors and mistakes and problems, just as we've seen with ChatGPT, Generative AI recently launched, everyone's excited about it, then it started to become transphobic and there were lots of other problems with it. We will see the same problems here. So none of those things are particularly clear what the safety, security and privacy protocols are to stop exactly what your astute um, commentators there have just noted. We've got another message from Reese saying, I'm pretty sure Google already has automated detection for child exploitation material on Google Drive storage, and they've had it for many years. Is that similar technology? Also, does some of this technology walk a really fine line, say for that, for example, with Google Drive, with privacy issues and privacy concerns as well? Yeah, so look, a lot of the tech giants, including Google, have had hate speech detectors, explicit content detectors. And look, one of the things that I I would love the audience also to know, I'll give a quick example about how some of this work is done. And this was what we learned about with ChatGPT's recent launch um, and how they trained that particular algorithm uh, in that uh, robot to not be posting explicit images or talking about reprehensible things. And that's because they get humans. In this case, they use uh, Kenyan workers and they pay them between $1.32 and $2 an hour to physically sort through all the reprehensible content on the internet and identify it, tag it, and remove it from the algorithm. So what I'd love the audience to also know is that we've got huge, huge human rights 
issues sitting behind how these big tech giants actually create the codes that identify this reprehensible behaviour online. Mm, Absolutely. Dr. Katrina Wallace, thank you so much for joining us and chatting about this. Yeah, it's such a pleasure, Joe. Thank you. That's Dr. Katrina Wallace, and she's the founder of Responsible Metaverse Alliance. SpaceX has carried out an on-the-ground test of its huge, super-heavy boosters. The engine's firing huge clouds of smoke pouring across the launch site. On Triple J. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder and you're listening to Hack. Dave's going to be back with you tomorrow, but I'm hanging out on the show today. Now, whenever we talk about space and the future where, you know, everyone, every human potentially should, could be able to go into space, a lot of you guys get really excited and the space industry is booming. It seems like, you know, every second day you turn on the TV and there are rocket launches happening all the time. But some researchers are really worried now that all those rocket launches are damaging the ozone layer after decades of work as well to fix a massive hole in the ozone layer. One of those researchers who's been looking into this is Dr. Michelle Bannister. She's a planetary scientist from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Dr. Bannister, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Jordan, thanks for having me. I'm going to start with the basics here. Can you just explain to me what the ozone layer is and what was going on in the 90s in the conversation around what was happening to the ozone layer? The ozone layer is a really handy thing because this is the thing that allows us to, in many ways, have life on Earth. So the light that comes from our star, from the sun, um, it comes through the upper atmosphere. And there is this layer of a molecule called ozone that sits at this high altitude. And up there, it's our friend. At the surface of the Earth, it's not good. You don't want to breathe it. But up there, it's great. It blocks particular wavelengths of ultraviolet light that would otherwise um, you know, cause skin cancer and do remarkable amounts of damage to all of the kinds of things that allow life to persist right here on the surface of the Earth. So it's a really handy feature of the planet. Industrial activity back in the 1960s, a million years ago, right? <laughs> there was um, People went, you know what's awesome? Fridges. You can put food in them and this is great and you can keep it around for ages. But the way they designed fridges was with this brilliant new chemical that was so effective at making coolant. And it was called a really long complex term, hydrofluorocarbon, often just known as a chlorofluorocarbon or a CFC for short. And this was super great, but it actually turned out it had some side effects. And one of the side effects is when it escapes from the um, refrigerator and gets into the ozone layer, it sticks around and it helps destroy ozone molecules. So you had this kind of subtle effect that people realized and then went, oh, okay, this is going to be really bad. People all around the world got together, changed the industry and made a piece of international agreement known as the Montreal Protocol. That led to a whole change in the way that we build cooling systems and refrigerators and that. And we don't use CFCs in them anymore. (laughs) Wow. So it was actually slowly eroding the ozone layer at that point in time, these CFCs. Yeah. People actually went down to Antarctica and measured this. They went, is this just theory or is this reality? And they went down and measured it and they measured it from space. And you could see this breathing of the ozone layer, the thinning of it, as it just was starting to um, really ripple apart. And what were the kind of effects that would have been happening if that continued on places like Australia and New Zealand, but everywhere for life on Earth? Well, it's one of the things that we do see is there's a reason we're all told to slip, slop, slap. 
one of the things that contributes to our high rates of skin cancer is our ozone levels. And now the ozone hole isn't always over Australia. You know, it does move around a wee bit. It's not always over New Zealand. It's uh, um, a little to the south of us. But that does contribute to why we have such severe rates of um, population health issues. Right. And so back in the 90s, all these countries all around the world got together and basically solved this problem. It seems like it's a huge Mm -hmm. environmental success story. Also, given where we're at with the climate crisis, looking back that the world was able to solve this. Absolutely. There have been major global problems that were going to seriously disrupt life on Earth. And we did something about it. You're listening to Dr. Michelle Bannister. She's a planetary scientist at the University of Canterbury. And we're talking about the ozone layer and what was back in the 90s, a huge environmental success story in terms of fixing that issue and really solving what was causing it. Fast forward to today, though, you're really concerned that we might be undoing a lot of this work. Can you explain what is the major cause of that and your concern? So at the moment, we have a growth of a whole new industry that is a few companies at the moment doing some really cool things in ways that people are really excited about what it's going to be able to do for the world. But it has some side effects that as we scale up are potentially going to be noticeable. And this is the aerospace industry. Mm. So we've been looking at how the increase in launch activities into the future could affect the ozone layer. So when a rocket launches, a rocket combusts material. So it's burning its fuel in order to throw itself up through the atmosphere and all the way into space and go into orbit or launch its payload into orbit. This means you have to pick something for its fuel that is going to have some kind of product, some kind of emission product. And these can vary depending on what sort of fuel you pick. You can have soot, like black carbon. You can have um, water vapour. You can have carbon dioxide. Many of those react in this kind of complex field of stratospheric chemistry to destroy ozone. And a rocket is kind of interesting this way because this isn't a climate change effect that we're talking about here, right? This is this is not something that's climate change. It's ozone change. Because a rocket is punching all the way up through those layers of atmosphere. It's going like a pencil beam up through that 40-kilometer region where you have the ozone layer. And so that means it can actually put that material of its emission products straight in the place where ozone is forming that protective layer. Right. So it's actually potentially a lot worse because you're emitting these particles in the stratosphere, not here on Earth. Exactly. There is a real variation in how and where you emit it, which can lead to some ways in which you can think about mitigating it as well. So there is a lot that we could do to think about how to allow the rocket industry to really keep doing all of the amazing things that it can do for us. We like having satellites. (laughs) They do a lot. (laughs) But um, how do we do that in a way that makes sure we keep this ozone layer intact? Yeah. Are there any regulations or rules internationally on the types of fuel that you can be using or, like you said, where we're emitting them? Anything like this? Is this at all regulated? No, it's a (laughs) regulation-free environment. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, it's a great problem to have. Right, so I'm guessing that you're going to say that that's what we need. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the things that you do as a scientist, right, is we don't make policy, but we go, hey, look, here's a problem. And you hope that some smart people who like thinking about how to make policy, um, which is that system of, you know, how do governments think about how to regulate things, will look at it and go, "Mm, 
all right, how do we make sure we support our industry and also make sure our industry is doing what we want it to be able to do? I guess the positive message from all of this is that we've done it before in terms of what happened with regulations and fixing the problem that, you know, that was causing the hole in the ozone layer in the 90s. It means that we can do it again. Absolutely. And there's a lot that we can do, right? So the folks who are making the rockets, the aerospace industry, there's a whole bunch of things they can do. We actually kind of went through and made a bunch of potential thoughts of ways people could work with this. So you can measure at when you're designing the rocket and when you're testing the rocket, um, how good its engine is at burning that fuel and what emission products it makes. You can measure the kind of in situ type measurements. So as it's going up through the atmosphere, what's coming out where, and also just making sure this data is freely available. Because a lot of the times it's really hard to be able to even figure out what kind of fuel some engines are using. Dr. Michelle Bannister, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hack on Triple Jack. That was Dr. Michelle Bannister. She's a planetary scientist from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She's going to be in Australia in a few weeks, though, for the World Science Festival in Brisbane. She's going to be talking about exoplanets and life out there on other planets. On the text line, someone says, rich people destroying the planet one orbital joyride at a time. Hack. We end up getting into these surface relationships and then they end up in massive breakups or divorce. On Triple J. Do you feel like romance is dead? If you think about how you date these days, is it all about swiping and filtering through people, you know, seeing if they fit your criteria for who you think you're going to fall in love with? Dating apps have made the whole process of dating really efficient, but in a lot of ways, really cold and clinical. And then it feels like because we're so savvy these days about dating and red flags and, um, you know, if someone isn't perfect, then we ditch them straight away. And in some ways that's really great, but it means we don't get hurt as much. But one researcher reckons it's bigger than that. She thinks we've moved past romance completely. What do you think? Are you avoiding the messiness of love? Text me on 0439 It's something the hookup on Triple J has been looking into and I've got our romance expert and hookup host, Dee Salmon, with me. (laughs) Dee, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I'd hardly say romance expert. I'm not very romantic, but yeah. Oh, well, we'll find out more about that. I know a bit about dating. (laughs) First off, though, before we're talking here about moving past romance, but like what do we even mean? What does this researcher mean by romance? Okay, so I think if we think about historically in our Western modern world, romance at least from the 18th century, from the Romantic era, was at the core of love. So falling in love meant that it was dramatic, it was painful, there was suffering, there was loss. Like all we have to do is look at our art, our literature. My heart's already burning. (laughs) The movies, the rom-coms that we still have. But yeah, you know, you think about stuff like Romeo and Juliet, everything was always so dramatic and heartbreaking. Um, You know, people killed themselves over love. And very interesting, this week, this idea has been presented by this associate professor that, that that romantic era the the years of romance is over and we're now living in a post-romantic era. So what does she mean by that? What does she define or what does she see as post-romance? Yeah, so this researcher from the UK, Associate Professor Dr. Carolina Bandanelli, says that the way we date and fall in love now is just very careful. We basically want it to be as drama-free as possible. We're so concerned about protecting ourselves and our peace 
that rather than be romantic and give people a chance, we quickly shut a potential date down. So if we see any sort of like, I don't know, slight beige flag, (laughs) um, I think this as well, there's this idea that people are just replaceable with the way that we date. I guess we live in a world right now where we're so obsessed with self-improvement. We care about, you know, people's love languages. That's kind of the conversations we're having, you know, whether they're in therapy, we try and avoid doing any sort of emotional labor. Um, And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I completely relate to that. You get hurt that way a lot of the time. You're not vulnerable. You're not, yeah, exposing yourself. Exactly. And it's something that the professor has found that it is mainly women doing in dating because based off the patriarchal structure, they happen to have gone through more heartbreak and, and, and harassment and hurt. And yeah, I feel like I've been with shitty guys in the past and now I won't let anyone into my life that isn't remotely adding value that I consider a healthy and safe person. So I totally understand that. But then in a sense, like I do feel like it's post-romantic because I haven't fallen in love with anyone in years because oh. I'm being so careful. I feel like dating apps really exacerbate this as well because it makes it very itemised and we swipe through, we have this checklist, we have filters. If people don't measure up to that, um, we swipe on and it makes it all really impersonal. Yeah, and this is exactly what Dr. Caroline Carolina found. She basically argues that dating apps have played such a huge part in this quote-unquote post-romantic way of dating and falling in love because we use them as a way to just quickly suss and write people off. This process of vetting and testing, uh, I would say it is post-romantic as it allows a form of objectification. And uh, I was recently made aware of this practice of sending questionnaires, questionnaires to potential date. And one can see how what is at stake is trying to avoid being let down, to avoid being deluded, to avoid also, of course, to avoid being harassed and traumatized and uh, to avoid the unexpected, to try and plan. And there is also, and this is very post-romantic too, the whole idea of efficiency. In fact, I think that one of the most post-romantic aspects of dating apps is this ideology of efficiency. It's a way in which we are trying not to waste time, you know, wasting time, losing time, losing something of oneself is probably one of the things that scared us the most in the post-romantic world. Now, I've never sent anyone a questionnaire on a dating app, but I've (laughs) definitely seen that so much with myself and my friends, right? Like scared to lose time on someone that's going to hurt you. You always hear a friend after a shitty breakup, mine's going, a friend of mine's going through it right now. And she's saying stuff like, I wish wish I didn't waste all of those years on this person. I feel like we're so scared, especially women, to lose time, to risk being hurt or to lose money or to lose even ourselves in a relationship. On the text line, Josie says, I'm 100% in my avoidance era. Dating apps have made things so hard to form genuine connections IRL, so I just avoid them altogether. Someone else says, the idea that dating in the 2020s is post-romance is just sexism because women now date the way men always have and are just more honest about it. Georgia in Sydney says, I honestly feel so disheartened with dating. I've developed such... I've developed such bad, anxious attachment from it. Dating is so shallow these days. Dee, it seems like a lot of this comes from a place of protecting ourselves and trying to protect our emotions and stop ourselves getting hurt for, like you said, a lot of the time, very good reason. But surely with love 
I, I'm going to sound like a massive romantic <laughs> right now, but surely like sometimes you just can't control falling in love and those emotions, right? Oh, totally. I mean, anyone who's fallen in love will tell you to, like you just never saw it coming. And obviously it's just Dr. Carolina's um, opinion, but she says she doesn't think that we're ever going to fully be able to avoid pain and heartbreak and the drama of love. I'm not sure it is possible to avoid pain. I'm not sure we have only to gain if we try to erase loss. I'm not sure that if we try not to fall, then it means that we will fly. I think that this focus on the self, yes, it is empowering on the one hand, but on the other hand, it also means that the weight of the responsibility, it's all on you. But I see how to lose yourself, you need to feel safe. And this is not easy. So, of course, it is ambivalent. I learned so much from this chat that I had with her and a big takeaway from it for me was that I think if we spend too much time trying to date this quote-unquote perfect person and try and control how we fall in love, we're not really allowing ourselves to experience, I guess, some of the joys of romantic love as well, like that uncertainty, that nervousness, the disappointment, the surprise, the joy. Everything's just so unknown and I guess they are all just really rich human experiences and make up the pleasure of, you know, love and being with ourselves and each other. It's so cliche. I'm going to say they don't call it falling for nothing. I feel like, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? You've got to kind of like let it go a bit. Dee, thank you so much. I love chatting about romance with you. My (laughs) absolute pleasure. That was Dee Salmon, the host of The Hookup on Triple J. We have so many messages still coming in about the post-romance era. Someone says, you've got to be in it to win it. Ups and downs make it worth it. Are we getting less resilient too? Someone else says, my friend got interrogated on a date and by the fourth question, he started giving bogus answers to these aggressive compatibility questions. He even tapped out mid-date. Wow, interesting. This is a really interesting message as well, and I feel like this really gets to the paradox with this whole conversation around post-romance era. It says, historically, women have never been safer in the Western world, so they can be much more selective in their decisions. That's it for the Hack Podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.